Cool. So we are continuing this series on emotionally healthy spirituality, and Dad did just refer to the fact that I spoke the other week. So we are talking about how to grow your soul through grief. Now, obviously, grief can be a bit of a tricky subject, so I'm just really hoping that God doesn't hit me right in the feels like what he did last time, <laughs> and that we get through it. But on a serious note, though, like seriously, if at any stage it gets a little bit heavy for you today and you need some fresh air or whatever, feel free just to head out into the foyer and get that fresh air, or if you need to talk to somebody, talk to somebody, because the reality is, is that none of us here are perfect. We're all here on a journey of trying to get healthier, and that's totally okay. And we've got that number of lifeline up there on the screen too, just because we are talking about grief today. And so if you do need to make a call, then can I please encourage you to do so. But I'd like to start off just by sharing like a little silly story, if that's all right, just to frame up grief and to frame up loss a little bit. And so my question for you is, have you ever been to a high school graduation assembly, like a high school leavers assembly? Maybe you can think back on your own experience of that. I can remember mine, but I remember more distinctly one that I went to when I was a youth worker. I went to one at Cressy District High School. And I remember um, by the time December rolled around, I'd probably worked with about over half the grade because it was only a small school. So for a lot of them, it was just simple tasks like helping them get their driver's license or a resume or some career advice or something like that. Some of the other guys, especially the boys, I did some more significant work with. But we rolled around to the end of year graduation assembly and we're there sitting there and I can tell you what, like nobody knows how to pull on the heartstrings like what the school does with a graduation assembly. Nobody knows you how to take you on the emotional roller coaster <laughs> like what the principal does. It's unbelievable. Like this, this room that I stepped into that day was just supercharged with emotion. And I remember sitting there in this room and we're about two hours into the event and, and already people trying to like hold back tears. There have been a few tears at the back row and all this sort of stuff. And then finally the event finishes and there's the rapturous applause and it's so loud it could lift the roof off. And then we went, we went into the next room for the morning tea and that's when the waterworks started. It was unbelievable. They should have put out like a slippery when wet sign. Like it was unbelievable, right? So like I remember talking to like this one boy who I'd been working with all year and he's got like the, I don't know, like the emotional dexterity of like a brick or something. Like he, we've talked about like how he's had family members pass away in tragic circumstance and we've talked about abuse and all this sort of stuff. Haven't got like anything out of him. And here he is over in the far corner of the room just sobbing, just sobbing uncontrollably, like tears streaming down his cheeks. There's this other boy over here with a similar, like, tragic story, and he's here just, like, huffing and puffing, and he's got snot going everywhere. And then there's this girl who's, like, um, has issues with truancy, and she's, like, there in the middle of the room, issues with absenteeism all year. Like, I barely recognized her. And, like, she's there sobbing away. She's crying. She's got a face on another girl's shoulder, like, the makeup just, like, streaming and running off and staining this poor girl's, like, sleeve. I don't think she knew her name because she hadn't been at school. And here she was just like absolutely just beside herself. But that was nothing compared to the parents. My goodness, the parents. The parents, right? They were there with their handkerchiefs out, sobbing and tearing and all this sort of stuff. It actually reminded me of a scene from movies, like when, you, when what I imagine it to look like down at the docks, when the mothers and the fathers go down there and they farewell their sons as they go off onto the boat to fight on the Western Front. It sort of like looked like that scene. <laughs> it was an unbelievably emotional scene, and it's one that I've seen in other schools since, like even amongst families that don't value education. And it made me think, it made me realize like this is, there is more emotion in this room than what I often see at a funeral. 
there's more grief, there's more heartache, there's more brokenness that's being shown in this room right now at such a, I don't want to say insignificant life moment, but, you know, just a smaller life moment than what we see in some of the deepest, darkest places of our society. And it got me thinking, and what I began to understand was that it was about change. And whenever there's change in life, there's always loss that's associated. By its very definition, change brings with it loss. And whenever there's loss, it reminds us of our limits, our limitations of humanity, and that we can't be all things to all people, and we can't have everything. (laughs) It reminds us about our, our limits, and this tension between loss and limits It hurts our soul, it hurts our emotional well-being, it hurts who we are, and that's what causes that pain which we need to then grieve over. Does that make sense? And so we've all got these things in life, we've all got these moments and experiences where we do um, encounter loss. And loss isn't relegated just to when someone loses a life, but loss can be anything. Like loss could be a lost relationship. I've just noticed there's a bird on the ground over here, I can't just not point that out. Sorry to point that out. I just, I just can't. That's right, we'll just leave him. It's the dove of Jesus. All right. We'll just leave him. We'll come sit back down. Oh, I shouldn't have pointed it out. That's unbelievable. So we're talking about loss, right? We're talking about loss. <laughs> We're talking about loss, and we're talking about how we all experience different kinds of loss. I tear, the bird's not going to go anywhere. If it goes anywhere, it's only going to try to steal the communion bread. It's fine. But we're talking about loss, and um, loss can look look like a number of different things, like a loss of relationship. We've all experienced that, whether it's like a boyfriend or girlfriend or a crush or a friendship or a marriage breakdown or whatever it is. There's the pain of the loss because we miss out on what could have been, but there's also the the limitation because we're reminded that we can't have perfect relationship with everybody. We have a loss with dreams. Like how many of us have had a broken dream where we've hoped and wished and dreamt for something and then all of a sudden we've seen it disappear (laughs) and go. There's a loss around our finances. There's loss around our careers. There's loss everywhere in in our life. And so the question doesn't become how do we avoid loss, but rather the question becomes how do we deal with it? How can we manage loss so our soul and our well-being grows through the experience rather than us being stunted by the very process of it. Because the reality, the truth of the matter is, is that everyone around you will eventually feel what you fail to grieve. I'm not going to say that again because some people didn't hear it because of the bird. <laughs> everyone around you will feel what you fail to grieve. So what the world does with these moments of loss, with these incidents of heartache and heartbreak and anguish, what the world says to do is, the world says the first thing you must do is you must bury your emotion, which is what we talked about in week one, isn't it? You must bury that emotion, you must bury that heartache and suppress it deep underground. You have to push that heartache and that heart loss. You need to bury it in the cemetery of your lives because it's too, it's too painful. It's too hard to deal with. And so we minimize it and we ignore it. And these guys in particular, we push it and we reject it and we say it doesn't belong. I think in Christianity, we're especially bad for this because that's where we try and copy and paste our spirituality over the top of it. And so we push and we suppress it. And what we say is we say it's fine. And there's no greater lie in the world. And so we've actually got a slide to show what it's like when we say it's fine. But there it is. We say this is fine, don't we? Like husbands... How many of you know that if you ask your wife a question and she says, it's fine, 
that it's really not fine. <laughs> or if someone asks you yourself, how are you going? And you go, oh yeah, I'm fine. We really know that's a lie. And so what the world says to do is the world says that we must bury our emotions and so we say that it's fine and so we believe this lie even though what's really going on inside is being neglected. And then the next thing that we do is that we try and replace the loss. So, so many of us turn to work and we busy ourselves, we distract ourselves because the loss that we've experienced is too painful to view. And so that hole that's been left over, we try to fill it with busyness, we try to fill it with distraction or we try to fill it with addiction. We might turn to food, to Oreo-flavoured Cadbury chocolate bars. (laughs) We might turn to alcohol. We might turn to pornography. We might turn to any number of different things, but we can try and numb the sensation of that loss, that thing that's missing inside of us. And then what we do is the world says time will heal everything. And whilst there's some truth in that time does heal, time alone does not heal everything. I think we've all seen examples of older generations of men and women on their deathbed who have still carried the emotional scars from incidents in their younger days and it's been a limp that's walked with them every day of their lives. And time didn't heal that. Time alone doesn't heal that. Time does help, but time alone doesn't heal that. So I want to say to you again that everyone around you will eventually feel what you fail to grieve. And so if we want the best for our relationships in life, We have to learn how to expose the loss, how to expose the anguish and how to face it in a healthy way so that rather than just burying all of this pain and heartache underground, we have to learn how to face that. We have to learn how to deal with that. And so if I want the very best for my relationships in life, if I want the very best for my marriage and for um, my family and for my friendships and for my work colleagues... The only way that I can have the best relationships is if I put these right hygiene practices in place to look after my own emotional well-being. Because you know what, sometimes if we don't address that heartache, if we just bury it underground and if we copy and paste our superficial spirituality over the top of it, sometimes God doesn't heal what we don't admit to feel. And so we have to learn to go a little bit deeper in life, to actually have a look at when we aren't doing quite so well in order to be able to grow up. (laughs) And so I want to look at the story of Job today. And I want to look at the story of Job because I think he's the story of all of us. Because his is a story of suffering and heartache and loss. But I think a lot of us struggle with the story of Job because we don't know where to start and where to end with it because it just seems so painful. And we don't know how to relate to it even though it is the story of all of us. But for those of you that don't know, Job was the greatest man in all the world. It says that he was the richest man in the, in the land. And it actually lists some of his possessions and that sort of thing. But he was basically the Bill Gates, wealth-wise, of his time. But it wasn't just that. The Bible describes him as being a righteous and upright and God-fearing man that had done no wrong. And so he was actually a really righteous man too. So he was kind of like the Billy Graham as well. Can you imagine being Bill Gates and Billy Graham at the same time? <laughs> it's pretty crazy, isn't it? That's who this guy Job was. And then one day, in one fateful afternoon, it was almost like as if all the power in all the world just collided in one moment of just colossal destruction over his life. In one afternoon, some attackers came and invaded his property. There was a, a lightning that struck. There was a tornado that unleashed its fury. And by the end of the afternoon, Job was left there having to plan 10 funerals for his 10 children. 
Job was there having lost his entire wealth. And so the story picks up with him now reduced to absolutely nothing, to reduced to absolute poverty, to heartbreak, to loss, sitting on the outskirts of town in shame. And his wife comes up to him. His wife comes up to him with some advice. She looks him right in the eyes and she says, curse God and die. I think Job knew what it was to suffer loss and heartache. I think Job knew what it was to to suffer, (laughs) to have that moment where you need to grieve, right? So I think there's some things from Job's life that we could possibly learn. So the first thing that Job did that I want to point out this morning is that Job was actually brave enough to face his anguish. He was brave enough to face his loss. I'm going to, it's going to be up on the screen, but I'm going to read it from here too. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, A boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May, may God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. <laughs> Can you imagine cursing the day of your birth because your entire life is nothing but suffering and heartache and pain? If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. What Job did by facing his anguish was counterintuitive to what we naturally want to do. It's counterintuitive to what the world tells us to do when the world says just bury it down, replace the loss, and just let time heal. What Job chose to do when he faced his heartache, when he faced his loss, when he faced his anguish, it was counterintuitive, but it was the way that God has designed us to be. You see, God has hardwired into us this need to grieve sometimes. God has put this mechanism inside of us called grief. (laughs) He's allowed us to weep. And the reason why God has done that is it is a health mechanism so that we can handle the heartache and the brokenness and the suffering of the world around us when that hits us. But too often we try, again, we try and copy and paste our spirituality over the top of it rather than being willing and brave enough to look at our loss. You know, we often look at the Psalms. We look at the Psalms and we say, that's spirituality right there, that's beautiful, it's worship. But did you know that two-thirds of the Psalms are laments? Most of the Psalms are about heartache and heartbreak. Did you know that God grieved, God wept in Genesis? There's an entire book called Lamentations. We see Ezekiel, we see Daniel, we see David, we see Jeremiah. We see all of these heroes of our faith grieving. <laughs> Grief is a way is a part of the human experience. It's a part of the way that God has created us. And if we're to deny our grief, if we don't explore that avenue of our emotional well-being, if we don't acknowledge those times of heartache and grieve over them, all that we do is we suppress and we bury part of ourselves in a graveyard of our cemetery. And you know what? Jesus wept too. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, but he also wept over a man called Lazarus. And I want to talk about Lazarus just for a little while too. So that's in John chapter 11 if you wanted to turn there. But Jesus wept over the death of a man called Lazarus. And so for those of you that don't know, the story of Lazarus goes like this. Lazarus, Mary and Martha were living in a town and Jesus was doing his ministry at a town nearby. And then Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. They say, the one that you love, being Lazarus, is gravely sick. Please come. And Jesus gets the message but he stays. He lingers. In fact, he actually stays for four days, during which time 
Lazarus passes away. Now, later on in the story, spoiler alert, Jesus comes and he raises Lazarus from the dead. But we have this interesting moment of in-between where Mary and Martha are grappling with tragedy, where they're grappling with the loss of someone that they love, and they're grappling with grief, and they're grappling with the fact that Jesus wasn't there. And so that's the part of the story that I'd like to pick up now. So it's in John 11. If you've got your Bibles, I'm just going to quickly turn there. And I'd like to have a look at how Mary navigated this season of heartache and loss. So verse 33 to 35 is the first bit that I'd like to share. It says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. I wanted to start there because, again, we see the same characteristic that we saw in Job. We saw in Martha this willingness to explore grief and this willingness to explore loss. And we see Jesus respond (laughs) and Jesus wept. So I want to give permission to some people today that it's okay to weep, (laughs) that it's okay to grieve, that sometimes when we experience loss, whether it's big or small, If our emotional reaction is one of grief and one to weep, then that's okay. It's part of the way that God has designed us to be emotionally healthy and emotionally mature. But it doesn't, the key to the story isn't really in that verse. It's actually a little bit earlier. So we're going to pick it up from verse 21 here. It said, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, she's saying, God, where were you? She's saying, God, where were you? Where were you when I was caring for Lazarus on his deathbed and I sent for help? God, where were you as I looked after him in the dead of the night in desperation when I didn't know what to do, when he was on his deathbed about to die and I cried out for you, God, where were you? God, where were you when my marriage broke down? God, where were you when my career died? God, where were you when my brother passed away? God, where were you in my heartache? God, where were you in my loss? Like, that's the cry of Martha's heart when she says this. And yet, the next statement is astounding because the next statement she says, but I know that even now, God, you'll give whatever you ask. I so want to be like Martha. I so want to be in that midst of that pain and suffering and still have the strength of faith to still declare that God, you are my God. (laughs) It's incredible. And then it goes on. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. See, I so want to be like Martha. My prayer, my prayer, church, is that I could be like Martha and that my faith might not only be useful when I'm on the mountaintop and having that amazing experience with God and everything is rosy and well, but rather that my faith would kick into gear and would light my feet as I walk through the darkest of valleys. My prayer is that as a community that we could be like Martha and that when we experience brokenness in our own lives, that that brokenness might be an opportunity for us to declare the name of Jesus. 
that I might be as strong as Martha where I can still minister and love on other people and declare my love for Christ even when it hurts. Because the thing about this story is, is that when Martha w- went to Jesus, she was going to the restorer of life, wasn't she? She was going to the resurrector. Jesus said, I am the life, I am the resurrection. And so I think by doing that, by going to Jesus on the outskirts of the town there, she met him on the road, she was going to the miracle maker. She was going to the healer. She was going to the restorer. And I think that's a picture for each one and every one of us. I think for some of us, that maybe, just maybe, God wants to restore some of the things that were lost. Maybe, just maybe, God wants to resurrect some of the, the things that have died in our lives. Maybe, just maybe. Because we've all got a, a testament in it, a part of our own story, don't we? We've all, all got that moment in our own faith story where God has revived something that had died where God has done a mighty miracle where we didn't think it was possible, where God has done what he did to, to Martha here and where he went to the gravesite and he raised a dead man to life. I think maybe, just maybe, God wants to do something like that here too. But the real key to this story, the real truth to this story, the real part that I'm excited about is that Jesus is the great comforter. Jesus is the great comforter. And so when Martha went out onto the road to meet with Jesus, she was meeting with the great comforter. And in this story about Lazarus dying and then being raised to life, you'd think that would be the epicenter of the story. But the narrative of the story is really about Martha. Did you know that there are more verses in this story about Jesus comforting Martha than what there is about the death and resurrection of Lazarus? (laughs) Doesn't that tell us something about the importance that God placed and the emphasis that he had on this narrative for our life? That even as we grapple like Martha did with loss and heartache and heartbreak, that Jesus is the great comforter, that Jesus is the restorer, that Jesus is the resurrector, that Jesus is the life. And the thing is that when we go to Jesus, just as Martha did, and when we declare to Jesus that you are the life and that you are the resurrection, what we are doing is we are enabling Jesus to tend to the broken parts of our soul. When Jesus said that I am the resurrection, I think he was as much talking about Martha's soul and the parts of it that were hurting and broken and the parts that had died with the death of Lazarus. I think he was talking as much about those parts about her own heart and her own well-being as what he was talking about Lazarus. You see, I think when we invite Jesus into our moments of loss and heartache, when we invite him into our moments of heartbreak, I think Jesus is the healer. He comes in and he does a miracle within us. I think he comforts us, but he also brings back to life some of the parts of our soul that feel like they've passed away with our loss. I think he does something miraculous. I think he does something beautiful. I think he does something new. And so when he says this to Martha, I think what he's really saying to Martha is, Martha, there is a new day. (laughs) Martha, you will be well again. Martha, let me repair your broken spirit. And then when we flick back to Job, we see the same sort of thing. We see this same pattern of the story. Let me just quickly flick back because there's another verse I want to share. Job says this in Job 19. He says, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. And here it is. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he'll stand on the earth. What Job is saying, he's saying the same thing that Martha had said. He was declaring the identity of Jesus before Jesus walked the earth. <laughs> he, was identi- he was declaring that Christ rules 
before Christ had even walked. He was declaring that Jesus was the resurrection and the life even before (laughs) Jesus was there. You see, in this confusing moment of in-between time, Martha and Job both did the exact same thing. The first thing they did was they faced their grief. And then the second thing in between the heartache and the resolution, the miracle at the end of the story, in this confusing period of in-between where we're all in heartache, they both declared that Jesus is the life and the resurrection. And that by doing so, they allowed God to do something supernatural within their hearts and within their souls. And the rest of the story goes like this for Job. It goes that just like Martha, God superabundantly blessed him. He restored him emotionally, but he also restored him supernaturally in the world as well. And the narrative of the story, the purpose of the story of the account of Job is to show that with each mini-death of our life, whenever we have that moment of heartbreak and loss, that out of that comes life and transformation when we reside in God. It's my question for us today, church, is how are we going to respond when we are faced with loss and grief? How are we going to respond when we feel broken as well? There's a part of the story about um, Lazarus again where they go to the tomb, right? They go to the tomb because Jesus wants to raise him from the dead, but everyone else says, Jesus has been dead for four days already, there's no point. And they start to crack open the tomb and everyone recoils because of the smell of it. Everyone can smell the decaying and the rotting flesh. And I really believe that that can be a bit of a picture for us. I truly believe it's a picture for us here today because I think for some of us, we've buried some emotions, we've buried some losses deep underground in the cemetery of our lives and we've might have cracked open the door of it just a touch in the past and we've caught a whiff of how rotten it's become underground because we haven't dealt with it. And we've just rolled the stone back over in front of it again. I think some of us have caught a whiff of the decay of our past hurts and we don't want to look at it again. But Jesus is the resurrector and Jesus is the life and Jesus is the healer and he stands before the tomb of the heartache of your life and he wants to see it. (laughs) And Jesus rolls away this stone and he rolls away this stone and opens up this tomb and Lazarus walks out bandages and all. And God wants to do something similar in your life. He wants to do something similar in my life if only we're brave enough to face our grief rather than simply just bury it in the tomb. If as we crack open the door and we recoil at the smell of it, Jesus is still standing there and he just desperately wants to restore you and to heal you. And so my challenge for you as an individual church, each and every single one of you, is how are you going to face grief? How are you going to face heartache and loss in your life? Job and Martha both did it the exact same way. They had the courage to face grief, to acknowledge that it's real, and then they had a declaration of who Jesus was and they invited him into that moment. So my challenge for you, church, is are you willing to face grief like that? And then are you willing in those moments to invite Jesus into that moment? So as you face that, that might look like a number of different ways. That might look like just journaling about some stuff and just processing through some stuff and working through it. Might look like joining a small group or a recovery group. Might look like going and seeing a counsellor. It might look like any number of things. 
uh, my challenge to you is are you willing to face it and write a bit of an action plan for your life <laughs> for how you're going to face those scary moments of grief and loss? And then will you in that moment invite Jesus into it? Because again, the truth of the matter is is that everyone around you will eventually feel what you fail to grieve. And sometimes God won't heal what you first don't admit to feel. And church, I just want to leave you with these last few thoughts before we go into communion. So in a little while, we're going to go into communion. If you're new here, it's really simple and we invite you into it, but if you don't want to do it, don't feel pressured. But we simply take the bread and we take the juice and it's just a moment of reflection for us with God. And then we're going to join Kate and the team in a final song. But my challenge to us this week, church, is it's bigger than just the individual as well. Because this week we had a couple of special days. It was RUIK Day and Suicide Prevention Day and a few really significant days in the calendar of our year, especially when we're talking about grief and heartache and loss. And without being too much of a, a downer about these moments, I don't know if you saw the news this week, but there were some tragedies that occurred. I don't know if you saw, but there was a man in California, a preacher, the preacher of a megachurch, and he has started an organisation called Anthem for Hope, and it addresses mental health, and it's about suicide prevention and awareness around depression and anxiety and all these sorts of things. And just this week, this preacher, this man that seems to have it all together, he took his life. Four hours previous, his wife had put up a video of him having fun playing with the kids. Just this week, Danny Frawley, Spud, died in tragic circumstances. This is a man who, for the last 10 years, has advocated for mental health and mental well-being in processing grief and loss. And on the day that he was supposed to go to his own party, on the day that he was supposed to go and see his psychiatrist, he didn't make either appointment. You know, our community is so broken. Our world has got so much heartache and pain and loss. We can't, as a church, we cannot afford to just ignore it. We can't afford just to pretend that it doesn't affect us too. We can't afford to believe that we're just this little oasis of a community untouched by the rest of the world, untouched by pain and suffering, and that we can walk through the, the doors here and pretend that nothing of that world afflicts us too. Church, Jesus called people to be real. We can't afford not to engage the world in these broken areas either. We can't afford that whilst the world goes broken, whilst the world goes looking for answers, whilst the world goes looking for ways to, to process their loss, whilst the world goes looking for ways to fill that need, to fill that hole caused by brokenness, we can't afford to ignore that just by clapping our hands playing church. God's called us to so much more, but it starts with us being willing to face our own grief, with us being willing to face our own loss, and then inviting Jesus into those moments. So my prayer, church, my genuine deep-seated prayer is that as a community that we would grieve like Martha did. that would take Jesus, that would take the life, that would take the restorer into a needing and broken world. So I'm going to pray. And then once I finish praying, as Kate plays, 
come up and join in communion. But as you sit there, can I encourage you, can you reflect on those moments of loss? And Can you do a self-evaluation with Jesus? Can you invite him into that moment and can you say to Jesus, what must I do to get healthier? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are a real God and that you've got something to say about the hard topics of life. And Father, I just pray for this moment. I know that each and every single one of us is needing and hurting. Each and every one of us is fully human. Each and every one of us is affected by the brokenness of the world around us. We've all experienced loss. We've all experienced heartache. We've all buried stuff underground because it's too painful to deal with. But Jesus, I pray that you may give us the courage to face those moments of loss, that we may invite you into those moments to repair and replenish the parts of our being that have been damaged. I pray that you may help us as a community to be strengthened, to grow healthier, to go deeper with you. And Father, I pray that out of this, that we may be able to meet our community with a message of hope, truth, and love. But this morning, I just pray that you may just stir up something in our hearts as we come before you. I pray that you may shine a light on this, that you may take out your surgeon's knife, and that you may remove some of the things that don't belong there, and that you may bring fruit and you may grow some of the things that need to grow. But I pray that you may stir something up in our spirit this morning so we may know that you are near. And Jesus, we're just so thankful. We're so thankful. Amen. Let's do communion, church.